Greetings. Welcome to the Volts Podcast. I am your host, David Roberts. As Volts subscribers are well aware, the fastest way to decarbonize the U.S. economy is through clean electrification, decarbonizing the electricity sector and shifting energy use in other sectors like transportation and buildings over to electricity. How can the federal government help that process along? Most control over power utilities and markets lies at the state level. There's only one federal agency with real jurisdiction over electricity, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. FERC is not an agency many people follow or even know about. In fact, in the Volts household, it has become a kind of jokey shorthand for all the boring stuff Dad writes about. But it could play a key role in implementing Biden's climate agenda, and it has come to a crucial crossroads. FERC has five commissioners. Currently, there are three Republicans, but one of them, Neil Chatterjee, came to the end of his term on June 30th. He has agreed to stay on temporarily because Biden, somewhat inexplicably, has yet to formally nominate anyone to replace him. Until he does, and the Senate confirms, the commission will not have a Democratic majority and won't be able to get anything big done. That's unfortunate because FERC has lots of big decisions to make about transmission, electricity rates, and markets with potentially transformative consequences. But the agency moves slowly, with rulemakings taking months or years, and it only has three and a half years to get everything done. Biden needs to get someone in that seat. Enter Representative Sean Kasten. The Democrat from Illinois' 6th District on the west side of Chicago is trying to draw attention to FERC and the importance of a bold and climate-minded new commissioner. He's leading a communications campaign called Hot FERC Summer, a twist on Megan Thee Stallion's Hot Girl Summer. Hey, nobody said getting eyes on FERC was easy. Kasten, a member of the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, recently delivered a floor speech filled with stallion-related puns of varying cheesiness, calling on Biden and Dems to nominate and approve a new commissioner quickly. He has also co-authored bills on transmission siting and rate-making that clarify and reinforce FERC's obligation to take climate change into account in its decisions. I have known Sean since the 2010s when he was the CEO of a waste heat recovery company called Recycled Energy Development. His long experience in the clean energy industry informed some sharp analysis, and he occasionally wrote guest posts for my blog at Grist, the environmental news site I worked for at the time. As you can imagine, it was a delight to see him win a seat in Congress in 2018, bringing his deep energy expertise to a body that has often lacked it. I'm excited to geek out with him about FERC and the state of congressional energy politics. Representative Sean Kasten, welcome to Volts. So happy to be here, David. Sean, I knew you back when you um, reached really the pinnacle of your career 
I'm talking, of course, about when you were writing guest blog posts for me. Really, it's been downhill for both of us <laughs> since we left Grist. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But but uh, suffice to say, you uh, uh, know more about energy than than the average bear, and, and considerably more, I would say, than the average congressperson. So uh, before we get to FERC, you know, we're going to jump into FERC, but I don't want to lose lose all our listeners in the first 30 seconds. <laughs> um, when you got to Congress, would you say that the average energy, clean energy literacy of your colleagues in Congress was higher or lower than you expected going in? Oh, that's a that's the kind of question that could get me in trouble for throwing people <laughs> under the bus. But let me let me let me maybe offer one of the one of the best pieces of wisdom I got on getting sworn in. Um, Jamie Raskin, who of course everybody knows now because of his work on the impeachment, is just a wonderfully kind and decent person. And he said to me, um, you know, when I was you know, just sworn in and trying to figure out the ropes of this place, he said, "This is a job that makes you." makes you very broad, but it's very hard to have the time to get deep. Mm. And if you want to, if you want to know how to get things done, ask people why they first ran, because that's a really good shorthand way to find out where, why people are deep. Mm. And, and so, you know, as, and, and he, you know, he said, you know, that way, when you're, if you really want to do something on healthcare policy or criminal justice, it'll help you know who those are. So I've tried to follow that policy and I've asked around and I will tell you that I have, not met a lot of people who said I ran because I care about energy policy, mm. um, which is not a criticism because they did run for other reasons and they have depth in other areas. But historically, energy policy is not the kind of thing that pollsters say um, the, vo <laughs> the voters demand somebody who uh, really appreciates the nuances of obligation to serve and rate making <laughs> proceedings. Right. Um, so, yes, it's lonely, but not in a way that I think is dismissive. It's just that it's not a it's not a way that people typically get into Congress. Well, right. Well, all of a sudden, I mean, I guess in the historical span of things, sort of all of a sudden, these issues are super hot, super on the front burner, and all of a sudden, everybody in Congress is being expected to know a bunch of stuff about them. Have you have you found that uh, people are open to being educated? I mean, is there is there a, a sort of crash education process happening? Or the. There is and there isn't. I've, it's interesting. Like I find that energy policy is a lot like foreign policy in the sense that most voters don't care, but we all make decisions that are really impactful. Right. And so it becomes an area where members are very deferential to staff on those mm. sorts of issues, you know, it, it, and as I am as well. Right. I, I don't. I don't claim to be an expert on, you know, the, the situation going on in Afghanistan right now. Right. But I trust that there are staff on the Foreign Affairs Committee and their job is to understand that. And so, so yes, members are receptive. But what's, what's hard on issues like energy policy is that the job of a congressional staff person is to figure out how to get done what is politically possible. Right. The job of a staff person is not to move the Overton window. Hmm. Right. And so it makes it hard to get members who are confident enough in their own skills to really try to push the envelope on energy policy. Right, right. So I guess that falls on your on your lonely shoulders <laughs> these days. <laughs> Speaking of trying to get this on the front burner and people that pay attention to it, let's talk about FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, just to start with, why, you know, whenever I tell people I'm writing about FERC, the eye glaze is almost instant. It's sort of like it's sort of like a cliche version of the sort of obscure corners of energy policy. So maybe just tell us why should ordinary people care about FERC? 
Well, the, the first thing, and I, I, I know this is just a lead-in you're trying to get to, is that the way that you stop people's eyes from glazing over with FERC is you couple your conversation with a picture of Megan Thee Stallion <laughs> and some hip-hop lyrics, because I, I've found this week that is a very effective way to keep people engaged. Um, we, we can get to that. But um, look, stipulate a couple things. Number one, um, we have to get to zero carbon way faster than anybody is even talking about in the most ambitious world right now. Number two is, you know, you've so eloquently explained better than I can. It's really hard to see how we do that without, quote unquote, electrifying everything. Right. Um, if that's going to happen, you know, and let's just talk about the transportation sector. The transportation sector uses about as much primary energy as the electric sector uses today. So if we were just going to electrify the entire transportation sector, we need to build about as much electricity generation as we already have, and then connect, build a whole lot of wires to uh, connect that new generation that's going to be in different places because it's going to be where the sun and the wind and the renewable resources are, not where the coal seams are up to loads in new places along highways and homes and apartment buildings and all that place. And that's just for the electric sector. The Department of Energy has no meaningful jurisdiction over those questions of generator siting, generator installation, generator permitting, transmission siting, the markets that regulate and give people an incentive to deploy those capital. The EPA doesn't really have a lot of jurisdiction over that. They have some on the environmental side. Department of Transportation doesn't really have much jurisdiction over that. FERC does. And so if we are going to do what's necessary on climate, FERC is really the only agency that has the tools that are necessary, the tools that are necessary to do what the what is environmentally necessary, even though it's not an environmental agency. So that's why you should care. Yeah, it's the only sort of the only piece of the federal government that gets directly at electrification, I guess. I'm not sure people really understand that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so... Before we jump into sort of the, some of the substantive issues FERC is wrestling with right now, of course, the, the big thing going on with FERC right now has to do with commissioners. There are five commissioners on FERC. Um, I believe it is is by statute, two of them have to be from the minority party and three can be from the majority party. And it's been a long time since there were three Democrats, but it might happen soon. So just tell us what's the state of what's the state of the of, of the commissioners? Yeah, so hugely important. The um, McConnell largely just stonewalled Obama's appointment, so it's been um, not as effective as it could be for a long time. Like most things, McConnell touches. <laughs> um, the but uh, uh, Chairman Chatterjee, uh, well, I should say former Chairman Chatterjee, now, now Chairman Glick. He was the chairman before um, Glick was elevated. His term expired in June, so technically he's off. He is agreeing to stick around until the new nominee comes in. Um, I actually get along pretty well with Chatterjee. He and I have spent a fair amount of time together, in spite of the fact that he started his career, I think, as an energy aide to Mr. McConnell. Um, yes. Um, and comes from the coal belt, but I think he's been he's been more forward thinking than a lot of people thought he would. But he still is um, is not by his nature going to lean in on some of the transformational issues that we need to do in the power sector. So with him gone, the president has the opportunity to appoint someone. There are several names being thrown out that have been vetted. I'm very long on rumors of the status of that process, but what I can what I can say factually is that the the Biden administration, as we talk right now, has not affirmatively put one of those names forward, and and therefore the Senate has not started confirmation hearings, and that's that really needs to accelerate because 
until they've got a three to two majority, they can't initiate the hearings. Until they've initiated the hearings, they can't do the ANOPERS, the announcements of proposed rulemakings for public comment and the periods for that. Until they do those, they can't do the orders. And until they do the orders, the markets are not going to start responding to the ways that they might change these structures. And we don't have a lot of time. So, <laughs> yes, those things so, do. Those things take a lot of time. Yeah. So, so just needs to go right away. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm quite certain that if the White House wanted to, they could twist arms and put some pressure to make that process move a little faster. I'm also quite aware that they have a lot of things on their plate that that that's true of, and they can't do all of them. So, I'm hoping it'll come quick, but. Um, you know, it's it's already not as quick as I'd like it to be. Right. Well, speaking of rumors, do you have any theories about the lack of urgency here? Because this really is, I mean, presumably there are, you know, maybe like Joe Biden doesn't know it, but presumably there are staffers up there who appreciate that this is, that FERC is the only route to a lot of his goals. What's, do you have a, do you think they're just not paying attention or do you think something else is going on? Um, you know, I'd be purely speculating, but I think it's I think it's probably not unreasonable to c- conclude that it's part of how this conversation started. It is it is not just your listeners whose eyes glaze, glaze over when you talk <laughs> about the importance of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And so there's not there's not been a tremendous amount of political pressure to expedite this as much as there has with, say, you know, we need to get new FTC staff appointed so that we can talk about what we're going to do with social media companies and antitrust. We need to get an attorney general to reconcile with the issues of the Trump administration and, you know, all the horrible things going on with white supremacy in this country. Those are really important issues too, right? But those have those have tended to attract a bit more political attention than, than this particular agency. Well, since you're probably not allowed to speculate, I'll speculate a little bit because I have I have also heard rumors that there's some talk of mansion of the FERC nominee being used as a kind of bargaining chip, trying to get centrist or moderate Senate votes for this reconciliation bill. And, you know, the reconciliation bill is really important, but also the FERC commission is really important. Do you have, do you know anything about what's going on in the Senate behind the scenes on, on that? Um, so I, I'm not familiar with that specific rumor. It doesn't sound implausible. I think it is safe to say that anything we are going to do meaningful on climate is not going to be done on a bipartisan basis. I, I wish <laughs> I wish that I wish that wasn't true, right? It's it's tragic. But you know, the way that our, you know, Democratic and Republican seats in Congress are distributed right now, more or less traps tracks to the way that the energy producing regions and energy consuming regions of the country are distributed. Mm. And so anything anything that a functioning FERC would do to accelerate the deployment of lower cost technologies, which also, by the way, is the deployment of, of cleaner technologies, implicitly is going to create a huge wealth transfer from energy producers to energy consumers, and therefore from the empty, depopulated red parts of the country to the concentrated, populated blue parts of the country. And that's, you know, I, I don't think it's intentional that the parties have aligned that way, but it but it means that it's very hard to, you know, I've, I've said to some of my colleagues who I get along with across the aisle that if your district loses $100 and mine gains 1000 I can understand why we're both not going to yell, kumbaya, we've created $900 of value for the American people. And so, yes, it's, I, I, I think those who would prioritize bipartisanship in this moment, you can insert any name you would like into that box. <laughs> 
do not overlap very well with those who prioritize the urgency of climate action. <laughs> uh, well said. Okay, well, speaking of the issues that FERC has its hands on, let's start with transmission. Transmission um, used to be a, a rather sleepy topic that not a lot of people cared about, but all of a sudden it's hot, it's in the news, everybody's talking about it. Um, FERC has an open docket on transmission right now that they're getting ready to launch into, which everyone's very excited about for some values of everyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Once so... a philosopher, always a philosopher. I can, <laughs> I can hear you describing those Venn diagrams. <laughs> so f let's just talk about what is wrong with transmission? What, what's going wrong and what can FERC do to fix it? And I know you have a a bill specifically about FERC and transmission, but I'm also interested in sort of what is the line of what FERC can do on transmission without a clarifying bill and what it really needs a clarifying bill from Congress for? Sure. So so let me take them in sort of reverse order because the, I think there's two problems with transmission. The first problem is that it is really, really hard to get a transmission project permitted in a timely fashion. And that is the result of the fact that there is no controlling agency for a transmission project. If you want to build a wire to connect the, you know, the, the wind in Iowa to the electric loads in Chicago, every time you, you, that wire goes through another, uh, you know, crosses a town line, a county line, a state line, you've got a different group of people who can object. And as, as, as compared to natural gas, where with natural gas, you can have a single controlling agency where everybody who might object can still weigh in but they can only weigh into one agency and you adjudicate these all at once. That has made transmission virtually impossible to cite in this country and is why for the last you know, 20 years, the way that we've built power plants sort of pre the rig deployment of renewables was to find where there was an existing interconnection and then run a gas pipe to that point and build a combined cycle plant at that node, mm. right? Because it was just easier to permit the gas. FERC can't really fix that. That needs to be fixed statutorily. The Biden White House and a number of us in Congress have been talking about creating a single office of transmission planning that would have that authority. And I think is really important because then you would just give certainty to people who want to build either generation projects that need transmission or the transmission to bring it to load. Like I said, FERC can't solve that. We can and should legislatively. Yeah, it's worth it's worth saying, just in, inserting here for our uh, uh, reader, our listeners, benefit that's the federal power act i think it was it was back in the back in the 20s 1920 19, i think 1935 i think was the federal power act, specifically right. gave FERC that over oversight of pipelines of natural gas pipelines and just through its silence didn't give it uh, uh control over transmission so the idea here i guess would just be sort of an addition almost to the federal power act saying FERC also has control over this, right? I mean, is is it that simple? Um, I I think so. Although I'm I'm just an engineer, so I'm not going to quote you on the legal <laughs> the legal ways to solve that. But well, that's I'll defer to Smart Energy staff on that one. Um, but yes, conceptually, you're exactly right. the The second problem is one that I think FERC does have the authority to address, um, and it's the classic problem of regulatory capture. There's a huge governance problem at all the the regional independent system operators and and you know, regional transmission organizations, which is that their membership is a function of their market participants. So you know, wherever you live, think of the big utilities in your state, the big transmission companies, they are the members of those organizations. And those entities 
more often than not make most of their money during during a few hours of the year when there's a real congestion situation. Um, the electric markets are actually extremely efficient most of the time, which means that it's really hard to make a profit most of the time. And when you get those congestion on nodes, that's where the big the big money comes in. And so they have a very strong economic disinterest in market efficiency. <laughs> and so that has historically made it really hard to to connect transmission that would have the practical effect of taking excess generation out of one part of the grid that's got too much load and moving it to a place that's congested on a little node down below. You know, you know, you look around the country, Maine has always had way too much generation. Southeast Connecticut has always been way too constrained. No matter how long we try to fix that, it's like, why are we not getting that fixed, right? The, you know, in California, you've had, you've got times, well, where you are, David, up in the Northwest, where BPA is dumping excess power because they have more wind and hydro than they know what to do with, even while California is short, but you can't get a wire that's run down there. And those are solved by making sure that we, you know, we bolster the interregional connections on the, on the grid, which is what this bill that's um, really Senator Heinrich, I should give all credit, has been really leading this. I'm carrying it in the House. Um, but to make sure that we, we fix some of those interregional issues and really direct FERC to do it because the pressure from the RTOs and ISOs is going to be to resist that. Um, I think they have that authority. I think there's some debate over whether they have enough authority to deal with some of the, the cost allocation questions. If, if your utility was to build a transmission wire to bring power down to Northern California, should you pay for that or should Northern California pay for that or how should you divide that? Those are tricky issues. Uh, so some of the cost allocation come in, but I think FERC has the ability to do that, but they derive from the governance issues, which is more an issue of are you willing to flex under the authority you have, not do you need authority that you haven't currently been provided? So what would that authority look like? I mean, if you, if you have RTOs that are benefiting from congestion, which also, by the way, reminds me of sort of how utilities benefit from demand peaks, you know, from running their super expensive mm -hmm. plant at peaks. And so if you propose technologies that reduce those peaks, you know, it's good for everyone except the utilities that make a bunch of money on the peaks. So it's in a similar way, if you, if you propose a line that's going to reduce congestion, the RTO is going to push back against you. What exactly does it mean for FERC to exercise authority or just to sort of insist that someone build it or how do they, how can they influence them? Well, at, at, at the risk of having, having an overly naive view of, of politics, I, I don't have, I don't, I don't see any problem with utilities advocating for their interests. And, and I don't see any problem with the regulator listening to those interests. The challenge is what do you do when, when another set of interests is not in the room or not as strong, and how do you make sure that their voice is heard, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, and that's just as true for you know, in our example, the beneficiaries in California versus Seattle, as it is for the beneficiaries who are not yet born, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> who are going to benefit in the future, but you know they're there. And I think a good, enlightened, publicly prioritizing regulator is going to do that. And there are certainly plenty of examples of people who would fit that description. Uh, you know, I think of someone like Louis Brandeis on the Supreme Court, right? You can have the other kind of regulator as well. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I think some of what Congress can do is essentially by by mandating good behavior, which I think we might, maybe in some philosophical sense, we might wish we didn't have to do. But by mandating good behavior, we will ensure that good behavior happens. But I do think, having said that, that if we get a good 
a good new commissioner um, to take this third spot, we will have a majority of well-behaving commissioners. One of the big problems is cost allocation, and I'm wondering if the bill addresses that in some way or how that gets solved, because that also seems like something that is a huge barrier, you know, sort of uh, just to, just by way of background, sort of the problem is right now costs get allocated to the the sort of power generators who want to use the new line, but that frequently sort of concentrates costs on them despite benefits being spread out widely over the whole area that the transmission line covers. And so that you get these transmission queues where everybody's waiting and waiting. And then if you know, a power generator has to pay the cost, they might back out and then the whole process starts over again. So does your bill address the cost allocation and, and how do you see that? How do you see sort of cutting that Gordian knot? So we, we, we do address some of it. Um, the uh, Kathy Castor has a bill that more explicitly addresses cost allocation where, mm-hmm. where we touch on it in ours is more getting FERC to acknowledge that when they do those cost allocation formulas, there's also a benefit allocation mm-hmm. and, and there are benefits that go beyond things that are thought of in a very strict Milton Friedman, all that matters is the price of power in the next hour kind of conversation. Right. Right. Um, so to try to make sure that as we go through, you, you know, for example, like suppose you build, we, we had a power plant in Northern Indiana recently where it was a coal plant that was totally uneconomic, didn't make any sense to run as a source of energy, but was providing some really critical power, power factor stabilization roles. Um, and if you want to go into power factor, we can, it's pretty nerdy though. Um, <laughs> But that's that's a that's one of these ancillary services that's not right. very well factored into retail markets, but the grid needs. Mm-hmm. And so they came up with this really interesting approach of saying, okay, we'll shut down the boiler, we'll turn the generator into a motor spinning backwards, and we'll use that motor just to do power factor correction. Oh, and interesting. Now we'll spread, and now we'll spread that benefit around the grid so that we still get the benefit of this um, this thing providing reactive power, um, even though it's not providing power. That, that was a really interesting creative solution. It was done because the people involved were pretty smart and pretty innovative, but you wouldn't necessarily get there in a normal FERC proceeding, even if you had a transmission line that was providing some of those benefits as a as an example. Right. That's a extremely expensive way to provide spinning mass, <laughs> isn't it? Well, well actually, like in that particular case, the whole plant was already built, right? Right. And so right. it was actually kind of neat that you took this thing and said, we're going to, you know, we're going to preserve you know, instead of shutting down the coal plant and losing the jobs, we're still going to get the benefit from a pollution perspective of shutting down the coal plant, but we're going to keep this existing asset running right. and keep some of the talent here. So it was probably a much cheaper way to provide that service than anybody else could. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting way down the details now. <laughs> okay. Um, moving on from transmission, the other one, uh, your, one of your other big bills has to do with, um, so FERC by statute is supposed to ensure just and reasonable electricity rates. So um, these big IOUs have to come to FERC and justify their rates. And one of the fights going back years now is whether climate change, climate damages should be taken into consideration when considering what it, what counts as just and reasonable rates. So you um, you have a piece of legislation that sort of explicitly tells FERC to do that. And again, I have this sort of same question, like, can FERC do a little bit of that without legislation and and what exactly does your legislation specify that it do uh so i would argue that FERC absolutely has this authority and again it's a question of let's make sure that they also have a an obligation stapled to it mm-hmm. but the um but let me just let me just walk through because there's a there's two pieces of why this bill i think is necessary so the so the bill is the energy price act 
Um, Price is an acronym that stands for something. I forget what it is. But, um, <laughs> the, but what it does is basically really reminds FERC, doesn't do anything new legislatively, is that number one, the 1935 Federal Power Act said rates must be just and reasonable. Number two, 1956 in FPC, which was the name of FERC at the time versus Sierra Pacific, um, the Supreme Court ruled that the commission, the FERC, must ensure the protection of public interests. And then mm. in 2009, the EPA endangerment filing that I know is one of your favorite rulings <laughs> right. said that uh, that rates must take into account current and future generations. And so with those three decisions in tandem, I think you have a very affirmative obligation on FERC to set rates that take into account the costs and consequences of climate change and effectively set up markets that for all practical purposes build in a carbon price in some fashion. Now, there's a that's the negative reason, right? That's protecting from a cost. But the I think there is a maybe even more urgent, if not more important, positive reason for this, which is that every clean electricity generator effectively eats its investment thesis. And by that, I mean that you, you, you build these generators, whether it's a nuclear plant or a solar plant or a you know a geothermal, whatever one you want, you build them because you think you are going to make money because you operate at a lower cost than the grid currently sits. Mm -hmm. You then put a source of power into those markets that is lowering the cost in those markets because you've knocked off whatever was the higher marginal cost generator that would have operated but for you being there. And so over time, particularly in the markets that have really embraced deregulation, you've seen electric markets get cleaner and cheaper. And to the point that you now have, and again, it's what I alluded to in the Pacific Northwest, you have a lot of hours where the power price is negative because there is so much hydro and wind on the system and they don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> and and so that, that then creates a, a circumstance where as clean energy succeeds, you lose the incentive to build any generator because because the value of electricity gets to be too low. Now, mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, think about how awesome that is, right? Where yes, the, the, the whole theory <laughs> that it's the, yeah, the whole theory that it's too cheap to build, you know, to to care about the environment is exact is exactly wrong. Um, it's it's too cheap, but <laughs> but so. But so now what happens with FERC, who is tasked with an obligation to maintain consistent, reliable power, what do you do in response to that? And going back again to this history, I think the legislative and the judicial history is pretty clear. What you do is you provide a differential incentive to bring on the generation that is cleaner, mm -hmm. right? And so you get there through the same means, but you, you, you get there because you have to prevent these technologies from eating their investment thesis. And, and what I'm talking about that's, you know, it's a strange thing to talk about with the solar and wind industry that seems to be booming right now. But that's what the nuclear industry is, is already going through, right? Those plants were built and now they're not making enough money to justify their, you know, their five-year refuelings costs. Right. And so they're having to shut down because they can't make enough money. And so now we're having a political conversation. Should the taxpayers provide a subsidy to these nuclear plants to keep running, Primarily because FERC failed to fix that problem that you could that I would submit you could see coming. Yeah, there's been a lot written about this this lately. This sort of like declining marginal value of new of new clean energy as it comes online. So your idea is instead of taxpayers subsidizing clean generators, 
FERC should in some way penalize dirty generators with a, with a pro, by forcing them to pay for their carbon emissions. Oh, I, I prefer to call it a carrot to the good guys than a stick to the bad guys. But the uh, but yes, they should they should ensure that there are incentives to build new generation that are responsible and that we need that are consistent with non-discriminatory pricing that does not adversely affect current or future generations. And will that will that be bad for coal? You betcha. <laughs> um, so, so this might be getting slightly too much in the weeds, but this this issue of declining marginal value—it's um, you're sort of chasing a receding target, right? I mean, you you can do differential rates, and that will punt the problem down the road a little bit. But doesn't it just come back unless you're sort of escalating that the differentiator instead of really escalating the the carbon price? I guess it's a question that's much bigger than the energy industry, right? I mean, it's it's why I said this is sort of like it's this very Milton Friedman esque idea. We've we've regulated all of our markets in this country for 30, 40 years on the assumption that as long as consumer price is falling, everything else must be good. <laughs> right. 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 And, you know, and so we you know, we outsourced huge swaths of manufacturing because if we could have a country that is cool with child labor, manufacture our dishwasher, you know, or whatever device it is, as long as the cost of the dishwasher is cheaper, we'll do it. And we've sort of hit the limits of that as an operating philosophy, I think. So I'm not, I, I don't mean to duck your question because I think it's a valid question, but I think there is this point of there are a broader set of societal values that are not always encapsulated in consumer price. And it just so happens that in electricity markets, we're on the verge of, of hitting the limit where if we don't answer that right, we're going to lose our access to power. But it's the same dynamic playing out in a lot of other sectors. So, so what you're trying to uh, delicately say is that maybe pushing electricity rates lower and lower and lower and lower is not the, not the north star here. There might, there might even be good public reasons to to raise rates to pay for those benefits. Well, I I guess I'd put it maybe in a, maybe slightly differently that if I can build an asset that is going to clean the air and create wealth for society. Let's make sure that as we that we have a regulatory structure that ensures that that wealth is equitably allocated between consumers, between investors, between the public at large, um, and doesn't disproportionately accrue to one of those groups. Right. 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 We're, so, we, are, we are making the pie higher. We just have to make, <laughs> we just have to make sure that we divide the pie appropriately. Right, right. Well, this gets into uh, a little bit of a broader issue, which is, you know, a lot of people who are involved in clean energy have a lot of complaints about IOUs, about investor-owned utilities, and the way, not just that they make rates, but the way they plan, the way they do things. <laughs> and I just wonder how much influence FERC has over them. So, so for instance, could FERC, under this sort of just and reasonable banner force IOUs to use instead of doing planning models based on the last 10 years, which I think is sort of standard practice, use forward looking models since things are changing very fast now and, and the, the needs are changing very fast now, just get them to be more forward looking. Or second part of this question, could, for instance, FERC use under the just and reasonable banner, force them to consider resilience, which is a, a big thing now, you know, people losing, people are losing power because of wildfires, because of cold snaps, you know, is there some way to include that in rates? So sort of like, what's the limit of FERC being able to kind of kick IOUs in the butt and make them move into the 21st century? I don't know that I have a, a really precise answer just because 
IOUs are so different in one part of a country than another. You know, we've mm -hmm. got, you know, some states that have really embraced deregulation where the IOU is really just the last mile distribution company. You've got other states that still have fully vertically integrated monopolies that own everything from the power plant through the transmission to the wire. And, you know, in the ones that are, and in all cases, you have some, you know, some very clear jurisdictional limits between what FERC can do and what the states can do. Right. Um, the, you know, generally speaking, the monopoly franchise is issued by the state. And so FERC can impact markets, can impact interstate transmission of power that the courts have deemed to be a federally germane conversation. But a lot of the IOU regulation planning is really more at the state PUC level. Um, I, I do think that they're, you know, my my all time favorite fur quarter. I'm sure you have yours. We'll have to ask you here before <laughs> everybody. You're done. Does it everybody? <laughs> my mine is 888, and 888 was the one that that really started to deregulate the power sector back in the early 90s. And the the reason I like it so much is because for the first time in the history of our country, we told the electric sector that you could make money by building the lowest marginal cost asset instead of saying you make money by building capital that will be built into rate base. And within within 10 years, the nuclear fleet went from 60% to 90% capacity factor because all of a sudden every utility said, I've got this asset that's really cheap to run. I should run that asset more often. Mm -hmm. We built a ton of combined cycle generation, natural gas, that was almost twice as efficient as the generation it replaced because utilities said, wait a minute, I can make money by having an asset that burns less fuel per megawatt hour. Um, let me build more of those. And within about 15 years, the grid went from emitting 1,300 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour to 900, all while rates were falling. Mm. I, now, I tell that long story because that order was implemented very different in different parts of the country. Um, you know, I suppose... Uh, you know, much like many issues of our day, you know, um, if you live in the Southeast, you effectively operate under a very different set of federal rules than if you live in the Northeast. The question you're asking about how they could sort of enforce more holistic planning tools on the IOUs, I think that probably starts by, wouldn't it be nice to have a FERC hearing that says, what are the lessons learned now from this 25-year-old order? How can we take sort of the the best practices that were implemented in some parts of the country and really accelerate their movement into other parts of the country that were resistant at the time because they feared something that didn't come to pass. Right. Well, this, this segues perfectly into one of my other questions, which is, you know, there's talk in the Southeast, the Southeast sort of f famously did not deregulate uh, its, its electricity markets and is famously still very much run by these vertically integrated uh, monopoly utilities, which own the power plants and own the power lines and deliver the power and do all the do all the things. There's talk now of trying to form a market there, and there's sort of some, uh, I guess, what I would characterize as sort of half-ass movement in that direction. They're sort of proposing a quasi-market called SEAM. I forget what it's, it stands for. We're bad with our acronyms here. Do you think that FERC can or should force the Southeast to form a structured, to deregulate, form a structured market, form a regional transmission organization and follow the rest of the country in, in, in this sort of restructuring. Is that something they can do? And do you think they should do it? 
Um, so look, as, as someone who cares deeply about climate change and who thinks that a properly designed market is the single best tool to address it, absolutely yes. I, I also think it's, it's entirely possible and not uncommon to do a really improperly designed market. <laughs> so, <laughs> you don't you know, say. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, so the, the details matter, but, but yes, directionally, I'd love to see him. I'd love to see him do it. And speaking of intransigent uh, regions of the country, <laughs> um, one uh, one hot topic of conversation lately uh, is about ERCOT, the, huh. the Texas-based. <laughs> they sort of famously have created kind of an RTO, a regional transmission organization that only applies to Texas, thereby escaping FERC jurisdiction because they don't ship power over state lines they do not trigger federal jurisdiction and i think it's it's i think they were not shy about saying that's why they did that they don't want the feds running there or whatever they think would happen if the, if they came under federal jurisdiction but you know they we had this cold snap a bunch of people died a bunch of people lost power and now we've just had a study, I think, a couple of days ago that said ERCOT could have, among other, among other things, saved about a billion dollars during that cold snap if it had just been interconnected with other surrounding states. Mm -hmm. So how do you cut through that Gordian knot? Is there any way for the federal government to force ERCOT to interconnect? Or is it basically Texas will have to make that decision on its own? <laughs> well it's it's worth pointing out because we, you know we use ERCOT in Texas as synonymous, but El Paso is a part of Texas. It just isn't a part of ERCOT, mm. and and El Paso had the same weather, they had the same utilities, they had the same generator maintenance, and they didn't lose power. Right? Interesting, <laughs> because they were connected elsewhere. Um, Oklahoma, for all practical purposes, is also you know a lot like Texas. They had the same weather and they didn't lose power. And when I when I said to um, one of my colleagues who shall remain nameless um, from the uh, the uh, allegedly great state of Texas, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you know, so will you be advocating to interconnect to the grid? Uh, it was a pause, and the response was, "Well, well, we still are Texas." <laughs> <laughs> and I yeah. think I think in a nutshell they're like you've you know you've got the perennial discussion about state versus federal rights right mm -hmm. and how much uh, as you and I have had many conversations about you know the uh, how much of our frontier mythology is based on the fact that I want you to build the railroad build the build the electricity build the broadband and then get out of here because I'm just an independent <laughs> cowboy <laughs> thanks for all that but don't try to tell me how to use it yes exactly well I mean you know I try to these days think like what would Republicans do and uh, they don't seem to particularly care about uh, these grand kind of more philosophical more broad sort of divisions of jurisdiction, whatever else, they just care about their goals and whatever tools they have to achieve their goals. So I'm just like, could, could FERC, do you want FERC to try to do this? Do you want FERC to try to browbeat Texas into this or, or pass some rules that would penalize Texas for not doing it? Um, I guess I'm not smart enough to know exactly what those tools are and how sharp they are. I do think, and you know, and part of the reason why I'm so bullish on FERC is that there's this there's this there's this huge tension between being pro market and being pro business. 
Mm. And if and and FERC at its best, you know, in setting up these 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 markets has been has been really really pro market. Um, in all that story I told you about FERC Order 888, most of the companies that built those gas plants went bankrupt. The plants are still running, but they designed the market so efficiently that people actually didn't make the money they thought they were going to make because the benefit <laughs> flowed to the consumers. That's a very pro market approach. And I think as long as FERC does that, you know, subject to my usual con what I said before about let's make sure that we, you know, allocate the wealth through the system so that people aren't choosing between consumer prices and bankruptcy, we're going to have good outcomes. But the, you know, your your comment about, you know, where are the Republicans on this, the Republicans, this isn't every Republican, but by and large, the Republicans are a pro-business party, but an anti-market party. Right. Yes, I love that and, way of putting it. I don't think that's widely appreciated, the, the yeah. distinction you're making. I, and and to be fair, like a lot of Democrats are not really pro-market either, right? Well, so, not many not many entities or people in the world are pro-market. When like, the rubber hits the roads, they are pro, they are, they are pro, the, they are pro their own interests, right? And, market, and, and markets are devastating to, to business interests uh, quite often. Yeah, no, I've, I mean, I've yet to met, meet the person who comes into my office and says, hey, Mr. Congressman, I've, I've, I've got this problem. It's too hard for my competitors to succeed. <laughs> we need to, we need a more, a, open this playing field. Exactly. I need more competitors. Yes, exactly. Um, what can I do to make more transparency of information and lower the barriers to entry and exit <laughs> consistent with the principles of Adam Smith? Like you never. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of lobbyists for, yeah, for that yeah. perspective. What about, well, actually, while we're still on the states' rights things, and this also may be slightly too nerdy for anyone to care about, but but this sort of, this question of where FERC jurisdiction ends and where state jurisdiction begins has been a hot topic in among FERC nerds lately, because some of the things FERC did with its regional markets with, via the moper, <laughs> which I'm not even going to attempt to <laughs> to explain uh, uh, here, but basically a, a ruling that had the effect of kind of setting regional market prices such that they canceled out state climate policies. You know, sort of states tried to make clean energy cheaper and uh, um, you know dirty energy more expensive. They they could sort of like cancel that effect out in the regional market prices, and that obviously is you know sort of outrageous to clean energy advocates. And it's also seems like a, a real imposition on states, on states, a, a power, a power of movement and jurisdiction. So I don't know if you've gotten down deep enough to get into that, but do you do you have any sort of general thoughts on where kind of what the right line is between FERC and the states? It seems a little arbitrary these days with electricity markets being so regionalized and so national even. At the risk of sounding like a cop out, I, I think at some level... The, the the blessing and the curse of our form of government is that we don't we're not very precise about that answer and right. and it and it moves around for a bit from time to time and there are and there are times when we think to ourselves boy thank goodness we have these state laboratories of democracy to lean in where the you know where the federal government isn't witness California emission standards right right um, there are other times where um, where it's it's hugely regrettable that we don't have the federal government <laughs> with some authority to step in witness voting rights right right, right. Um, and yes there's a big issue and I think 
and and I you know I, I know because I've spoken to him. I know that Chairman Glick is thinking a lot about how to how to structure markets to not step on state you know renewable energy standards and mm-hmm. other incentives they may have had in place and to to factor those in. But those standards exist in no small part because the federal government failed to act, right. and the states stepped up. And you know one of the things, and this is a you know moving into a, a totally different realm almost. But if we were to by some magical event, come to agreement on a, a federal economy-wide carbon pricing structure tomorrow, we'd have this huge problem that the states have already done it in a bunch of places. You've got AB32 in California, Reggie, mm-hmm. and you have a bunch of private players that have entered into long-term contracts with an expectation that those contracts would be honored under the terms of those agreements. And so for all practical purposes, it is impossible right now to write a federal carbon pricing structure that doesn't have tons of carve-outs around the country, which means a, a disharmonious standard when you cross the border from, let's say, you know, California into Nevada, where, by the way, trucks and cars and power lines cross all the time. But how do you, yes. you know, we'd have like these like intrastate, you know, border adjustment agreements or something that we'd have to figure <laughs> yes. out, right? And I don't like it's a cop out on your answer because I don't know that I'm I, I think on balance I like our federal system of government. <laughs> but, but but it's a very issue by issue answer. <laughs> right, right. Much much like you rarely people meet people who uh uh advocate for markets as such, you rarely sort of meet people with a strictly principled answer to this question. It very much depends on like, well, what's the issue? Like, <laughs> exactly. I mostly care about my issue, not uh, not these abstract questions. Yeah, I mean, as as an interesting aside, when we first put NAFTA together, Mexico was essentially forced to come into compliance with our electric regulatory structure. But Mexico doesn't have nearly as strong a culture of states' rights, mm. and so in Mexico, you can do things that seem completely magical and dreamy where you can <laughs> you can build a power plant in one part of Mexico that's really optimized to the local resource maybe it's a waste heat recovery project like I was doing on a prior life for a solar plant but if that if that power source exceeds the the local load you can just dump it onto the grid and then enter into a purely financial agreement with someone on the other side of the country who would happily take your excess power and just agree to financially settle with them as long as there's a transmission corridor that connects. That's actually fairly consistent with FERC-level rules, but inconsistent with the ways that different states and regions have interpreted those rules um, (laughs) within the United States. So the sort of the degrees of freedom and flexibility you have to really optimize a system so that locally you're saying, how do I make the maximum amount of valuable energy from this resource at this location, and then just figure out how to deal with the financial matters separately. We have those mm-hmm. tools. We just, our state's rights get in the way. So we, we have a model to our South of what we might be with a stronger federal structure, but for the fact that they don't quite have as robust a legal system as we have. Yes. And states are quite jealous of those, of those rights here. Um, here's another puzzler for you. <laughs> Some recent studies have shown that distributed energy resources, which for listeners benefit just means uh, generators or energy storage that's on the distribution system, not on the 
transmission system, not wholesale, sort of down at the retail level, that in aggregate, distributed energy resources have huge effects on the national system, on the national economy, on the national um, uh, electricity system, but are sort of intrinsically local. So I wonder, is there anything FERC can do regarding distributed energy resources? It seems like an awkward interface, but I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, by by recent studies, I assume you mean ones from like 1992 or so, because this has been this has uh, been true as long as I was right. You, you were know, you were in the business of uh, distributed whole, energy resources. Yeah, no, I spent my and it and it drove me crazy that I'd sit there. I mean, I've I've lost track of how many times we we optimized a generator to a local load, knowing full well that that was not optimized to the region, but we couldn't get paid to optimize for the region. Right. Right. And so we were leaving value on the table and, and in some cases working, you know, against value because of the way that the, the rules were wrong. So there are there are some limits between FERC and federal, but there's um, the, as long as we're going with cool FERC orders, FERC 2222. <laughs> And, and FERC, FERC, FERC does have this interesting thing where they always pick very memorable numbers for their most impactful rules. Yeah, are they like, totally or, arbitrary? Are they just picking those numbers out of the out of the air just for funsies? I, I don't, you know, I, I I actually don't know the process, but I have been told that they do reserve, you know, you know, palindromic or interesting numbers for good <laughs> orders. Um, so like, you know, order one thousand is a and, big one. And people call them boring. Yeah, so I know. <laughs> Bringing sexy back. Um, <laughs> Um, but 2222 basically is a fairly recent order that's in effect that says that you can sell demand services. So in other words, like if I'm a, if, if I'm a generator, I have, I provide energy, which is the megawatt hours that you get out of your socket. And then I provide capacity, which is the ability to be there on a moment's notice if you need me, um, even if I'm not running. And what 2222 did was said, there's a whole lot of lo of capacity value that is created by these local d distributed resources. If you enter into an agreement that says, sure, I can, I can tolerate an extra five degrees. If you pay me for it, I'll shut my air conditioner off to mm -hmm. let me install more efficient light bulbs that will cut the load down, to let right. me put a generator on my premises that will displace load. All those things in aggregate are not, not only as valuable as the generator that's sitting there able to suddenly provide new load, but objectively more valuable because the generator that's a hundred miles out of town, you know, may lose twenty mm -hmm. to twenty to forty percent of its output on a hot peak day by the time it gets into your house. So if you can actually curtail load at your house, uh, you know, a megawatt of load reduction might be worth one point two, one point four megawatts of, right, of right. capacity on the system. And so 2222 provides a way, not so much for you as a homeowner to participate, but for so-called load aggregators to say, let mm -hmm. me go and put together a whole network of people. And I can now participate equally with the big generators in these markets um, with, these, with these values that I can aggregate from this collection of distributed resources. It's really cool. I think we've barely scratched the potential of what we could do um, within those markets. And that's not a complete set of all the values that distributed resources can create, but it's certainly a, a heck of a first step. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder though, and here we're going to lose our our last three remaining listeners as I <laughs> as I pursue further down this rabbit hole. But I wonder, like, you know, twenty twenty two 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 opened up, um, as you say, demand side aggregators or, or DER aggregators that they can play in these wholesale markets. But I just wonder, as DERs proliferate, 
you know, are sort of just on the kind of front edge of what they could be as they proliferate. I just wonder if that's just going to be computationally nightmarish. You're going to go from wholesale markets that have like a dozen participants to wholesale markets that have thousands or tens of thousands even. And I just wonder if that's the right level of administration. And if we don't need something at the distribution level, something more like a distribution system operator, like they have in some other countries, like they have in the UK, to sort of manage that local complexity and and simplify it, you know, before it moves up to the wholesale level. Do, does that... That... Yeah, I, I I don't. You might be right, and I I haven't thought about it at that level. I mean, we we do we do have distribution system managers in the sense that every region has a load serving entity. When I ran a utility in Rochester, New York, I had load serving entity responsibilities over that particular node, where I had to know all those things and manage it. And you know, in your distribution utility, um, you know, Seattle Power Line, whatever they are, a load serving entity that had those responsibilities. I think, though, to some degree, the DERs are already there. The question is just, do we know about them? Mm. Right? You know, there was, because there's so many people, you know, who were doing what I was doing a decade ago, building these systems out, but not optimizing them for the grid, optimizing them for the local load. And so every factory that takes a decision to put in a more efficient motor is having a very meaningful effect in aggregate on their grid. But the right. utility doesn't necessarily know they're there or know right. that they have the ability to dispatch up suddenly in response to a variable price signal. And they don't find that out until they institute a variable price signal and say, holy smokes, these people had mm -hmm. flexibility to understand. The I, I think, uh, and I haven't looked at the latest database, but last time I looked, um, the there was something like 83,000 megawatts of cogeneration installed on the grid. The median generator is like two megawatts big. And almost none of them are are speaking in any kind of a data or dispatchability region to the grid managers. They're just turning on and off in response to local loads. Right. And so what that looks like from the perspective of the, you know, FERC at the highest level or the distribution companies at the lowest level is just normal variability in load that doesn't look much different from a bunch of people turning their lights on and off. Right. Right. But because they don't have the data, they also aren't going out and saying, well, this would be really valuable if I could actually, could I pay them to dispatch according to some larger value, right? Right, right. And I just, I guess when I envision that kind of management, that kind of sort of detailed local management where you're trying to sort of coordinate things so they work at the local and regional level, I'm just trying to imagine RTOs doing that for you know, whatever five different regions <laughs> that they're that they're overseeing with thousands of DERs in each of the regions. I guess I just I'm, I'm inclined to think we need more robust management closer to the distribution level to keep track. Uh, of oh, the AI robots will take care of it. We'll just we're just gonna... <laughs> <laughs> you know I used to have such faith. I used to have such faith in that, and then I was researching this article about that, and everybody was like. No, the robots are not going to do this. You can't. There's not going to be the robots. I was so psyched about the robots. Um, okay, well, uh, moving on then, we, we've been mostly uh, talking about electricity because, of course, it is the most important thing in the world and everybody should know more about it. But FERC also legendarily has uh, jurisdiction over pipelines and have been quite profligate uh, in the past, approving pipelines all over the place. And, they, and there's been this sort of... <laughs> This, you know, for those people who follow this kind of thing, this sort of heated battle between Glick, the 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 Democratic uh, uh, commissioner, and Chatterjee, the the Republican commissioner, about whether FERC should take climate change into account when 
approving or not approving pipelines. This seems like a pretty clean cut issue. So I wonder, uh, are, are, are you involved in any legislation regarding that or have any opinions about what to do about FERC and pipelines? Um, so I'm not hugely involved. Obviously, I feel strongly that FERC does have the authority and obligation to take climate change into account and what they approve. I think what gets a little bit harder, at least to my small brain, about pipelines versus electricity is that conversations around should we provide incentives for the market to meet people's energy needs as cheaply as possible, I think are really easy, black and white, absolutely yes, every time questions. Right. Conversations around should we limit people's ability to access energy in exchange mm -hmm. for considerations about other moral issues, I think are a lot grayer. And that's not to say categorically yes or no, but but I, th I think it's harder when you're saying there's a pipeline where if we don't build this pipeline, will you still be able to keep your house warm in the next cold snap, right? That's right. that's different from when did, did we get the incentives right to give you with uh, with resources. And I think a lot of times this conversation about pipelines is those two conver those two arguments that are sort of sailing past each other. Right? Yeah, but if you t if you talk to activists, what they'll say is that these pipeline companies are not making very plausible cases that they're that they're necessary in that way that a lot of these are just, um, you know, profiting kind of these, these fly by night debt heavy, uh, uh, fracking companies and not really, yeah. they're not being held to, they're not being held to very tight account, I guess. No, I guess I'm not, I'm not saying those arguments aren't, are not sometimes true. I'm just not saying they're not always true. Right. right. I mean, if, if at, at some level, you know, energies like sex and drugs, if you want to curtail supply, you've got to curtail demand. You, you can't, you know, you can't curtail demand by limiting supply. That just criminalizes supply. Right, right. You know, you know, and so let's invest in efficiency. Let's invest in conservation. Let's make homes tighter. But if you if you say you can't build a pipeline across the Canadian border, you better you better be happy with a lot more port traffic, right, or rail traffic, because as long as people still want that energy, they're going to find a way to get it. Right. So. Enough about FERC. I have, <laughs> I've kept you a long time and we probably talked about FERC more than any two people have a right to. Um, but I have a... <laughs> and a fraction of what the planet deserves. A fraction of what the planet deserves. Oh, actually, you had a one third bill about FERC. Just, let's, let's just mention real quick what that was, what the third bill is. Oh, oh the, the third one, and this will totally bore and is probably the least interesting. This was, this was a right to timely rehearings. Um, timely rehearings? Yes, yes. Because, <laughs> it, and well, and, and, and frankly, I think, you know, this is sort of what we were saying before about how it's it is appropriate for for the IOUs to argue their case before FERC. It is not appropriate for the other side not to be heard. And in every you know at every utility regulator, state and federal level, one of the ways you control the process is by limiting the other side's access to the process. Right. Um, so this is basically just making sure that when people have disputes, they have some sort of a cost-effective, time-effective way to make sure that their case is heard. Right. So to sort of uh, summarize, I guess, the foregoing, it sounds like you think that FERC actually has already a lot of the statutory power it needs to implement a lot of these things. And, it, and, and a lot of it just comes down to kicking them in the butt to do it. A lot of which sounds like it could be solved with a sufficiently committed commissioner, <laughs> you know, sort of like that. In some sense, that might solve a lot of these problems, just getting three commissioners on the on the board that are aimed in the right direction. Sing it. Sing it from the rooftops. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so 
as a, by way of a final question, then uh, moving back a little bit from Ferg, so related actually. So this is where I get depressing. So passing bills in Congress has become basically impossible because of the filibuster. Um, so what do you anticipate happening to these bills? Do you want them to try to sneak into the reconciliation bill? Do you think there is real prospect of getting 10 Republican senators to care about FERC and vote for vote for a FERC bill? Sort of like, what do you, where do you see this legislation going? Um, I, I wish I had the, you know, a clear answer. I, I was chatting with Secretary Granholm earlier this week, and I told her that I feel like us members of the House spend most of our time just sort of peeking out the door, looking looking to the other side of the Capitol and waiting to see if the parliamentarian is going to issue a wider black puff of smoke. Um, <laughs> just doing doing your chanting, uh, you know, sacrifice, sacrificing a goat. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, what's unfortunate, and let's be really clear, get rid of the damn filibuster. It gums up everything and it stops us from doing our job. Mm -hmm. It's not what the founders intended. It's it's just something you do if you think the best way to resolve debates is to defer to the will of the minority, because that's what the filibuster does. Having said all that, as long, <laughs> as, long as it exists, the way that you pass things that are supported by bipartisan majorities of the American people, but are not supported by bipartisan majorities of the United States Senate, is by jamming them into huge bills in corners where people aren't paying attention to. <laughs> yes, like the like the energy bill that passed just at the very end of the previous congressional yeah, session, exactly. which sort of miraculously had all kinds of good energy stuff tucked away in it, which survived, as far as I can tell, entirely because no one was paying attention. Well, and because it was jammed into a bunch of other things that people did like and said, I'll, I'll take a little bit of this with that. Right. And, uh, you know, it's... I don't remember that speech by our founders of the right. <laughs> <laughs> Thou and, shalt jam everything together and yeah, hope no one's paying attention. Exactly. And so, you know, and so what's what's hard on, you know, on climate and it's it's hard to predict, but we are, you know, I think let's start with the real positive. We have a White House that is absolutely committed to doing what's necessary. We have, uh, you know, House and leader, House and Senate leadership that is committed to doing what's necessary. And therefore, is committed to saying, until we have everything, we have nothing. And so we will get whatever we can do into the bipartisan package, and then we will look at what's left and try to find a procedural way to get that into the reconciliation package so that we can jam everything together. I, I think that process, at least in theory, has the potential to do a whole lot of good things. What's hard in practice is that because of the arcane rules of parliamentarian and the reconciliation process and the bird rule, the things that we can do that are subject to reconciliation are by and large limited to things that require the expenditure of federal money. Right, right. And the things that we, almost everything we're talking about at FERC is really a policy change to, right. unleash, to unleash private markets. Yeah. And so we're in this bizarre case where if we insist that Republicans must be at the table, then we are insisting that we do not embrace capitalist free market principles <laughs> and, that, and that we have to prioritize the spending uh, of federal dollars to fix these problems, right? And, and, and that's and, why all – this is what, just as an aside, this is why all policy these days gets crammed through the tax code. It's not because that's the best way to do things. It's just because it's the only way to pass things it's, Yeah, well, it's – 
don't know that I'd be quite that explicit, but it certainly is a part of it. But, <laughs> but you know, but so like, you know, if you run the math, like, so Secretary Granholm has said that if we're going to electrify everything as we must, we need to build 1,100 gigawatts of new generation. Mm. I think I think she might be a little low, but for context, <laughs> for context, we currently have 1,000 gigawatts of generation total installed in the country. Right. Jesse Jenkins, who I know you know over at Princeton, has said that once we build that out, we'll need to spend at least $350 billion in transmission to connect it up to the grid. If you figure that that generation is going to cost $1,500 to $2,000 a kilowatt, and Jesse's right on the transmission side, that means we need something like 2 to $3 trillion just for the electric sector. Yeah. Right? We haven't gotten to roads and bridges and ports right, and EV right. charging stations and all the other stuff in the infrastructure package. And that's not to be... That's not to say that we can't do it. It's just to say that if we are going to do what's necessary, we should really be working with the private sector because they got a lot of cash too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they got more than we do, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, so the more we lean on reconciliation, the less we have the ability to lever private markets and right. all of that entrepreneurial zeal that we love in our country to lever them for the cause which means that we're not going to do as much as we should. Wow, the dysfunctions, really. The, you follow a string of dysfunction <laughs> into a forest of dysfunction. <laughs> okay, final question then. Speaking of the reconciliation bill, just quickly, like energy-wise, clean energy-wise, climate-wise, what do you think are, the, are like the top one or two or three things that you absolutely are prioritizing fighting for inclusion in that bill? How do I pick my favorites? <laughs> I, I, I think at core, making the clean energy transition we need depends on building assets, not operating assets, because the assets that we will build will run all the time because they're so much more competitive, right? Mm -hmm. the, coal, the coal industry is dying because it can't compete economically. Mm -hmm. And no one ever woke up in the morning and said, given the price of power today, I'm going to turn off my solar panel, right? <laughs> you, 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 just, you just have to get them built. So I'm I'm really focused on those things that will accelerate the construction of those assets. A well-designed CES, and I say well-designed, I think Senator Smith has a great CES. Let's How, just say, for listeners' benefit, clean electricity clean standards. Clean electricity standards, yes. Requiring but, utilities to boost their, their percentage of, of clean energy. Yeah, and it, you know, designing that well provides a huge carrot to clean generators that when you're sitting down there saying, can I justify this investment? It goes from no to, holy smokes, I sure can, because I'm getting paid for this societal value that I'm creating. It's, it's going to be key to watch how that evolves, because some of that's being tweaked right now to fit into a reconciliation process, which is Yeah, so I was going to say, desi designing well means, one, to achieve your goals, and two, to please the, the parliamentarian yeah. wizard, wizard who will <laughs> yeah. either allow it to go or not, those which are not necessarily the same design constraints right or not some e even intention i'm not even sure they're in the same room like, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. um so yes like you know but but a well-designed ces um really really important you know get the let's I, I'd love to see a proper market for carbon but if i have to choose between carrots and sticks give me a carrot and a ces is a carrot right. um the uh, we are also you know for obvious reasons this call just really, really focus on anything we can do to accelerate the deployment of transmission. You know, we've, we've got a really a, a really pretty strong infrastructure bill from the House, the Invest Act, that has a whole lot of money in it to build out EV charging to make sure that EV charging is done equitably. So it's not only available to people who have owned their homes and have a garage that they can put a charger in. But if you go through and build all that out, 
we need to make sure that we've got the we've got the wires and generation to meet that expanded electric load. And and all that stuff can be done through these transmission measures. So transmission and CES would be my my big two. I, and I've heard that transmission's having a rough time of it in the Senate. That there are that there's pushback from Republican senators about some of the language around transmission and some of the money for transmission in the bill. Do you know anything about that? The subtext behind all of that is energy producers versus energy consumers. Right. 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 If you if you build out transmission, you will make it easier for more cost effective sources of power to find a home for their product. Right. Oh, what a system we've built. Thank you so much for taking all this time. Always a pleasure, David. All right, all right, thanks a lot. Take care. Bye now. Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.